Well, good morning, everybody. I always try to be careful in the wording because I know the attention needs to go in the right place, but I think it would be appropriate for us this morning uh, in light of God's gift to us and the gifts and abilities he's given uh, Jared and Heather and the team. Let us uh, have a round of applause for his glory and his blessing. For getting to be led so well in worship. Um, I've known Jared a long time, uh, longer than we actually knew each other well. We knew of each other um, because we worked at the same organization, but we were at uh, two different locations, so our paths just kind of mildly crossed, and namely, I just heard good things about him, but never really knew uh, him personally. And then that got to change a couple years ago when Jared was kind enough to um, invite me uh, to come and to teach some with him, with his students in Israel. And so we had a uh, great time going out there, um, and it was really, there was a lot of uh, blessings and memories from that that trip. And then one of them was, again, probably the luxury of getting to go as a teacher and kind of the, getting the behind the scenes and some access to some different points. And one of the things that uh, always strikes me, strikes me to my mind of, of uh, our time there actually revolves around one of the lunches that we had. Because we stopped at this place that um, I guess best put, it's kind of like the Israeli equivalent of like the blue store or the noonday store, right? Like it's kind of this like right off the roadside, not really good indoor outdoor seating, kind of just kind of a weird place. It's kind of more like a convenience store, gas station inside where you get your stuff. But then they also had these kind of sandwiches, these falafels. Uh, and so all the students kind of get in there and it's as quick, like they had them ready, they knew they were coming. And so they're passing out these falafels, these veggie pitas um, to anybody who wanted them. And then Jared's kind of like, Paul, this way. We got it this way. And then we kind of got led around with our guide and our driver to kind of this little like back way up lifted kind of patio. Uh, and then they started putting in front of us this just a glorious spread of all this like um, roasted lamb and chicken and uh, beef. And they had these like fresh pitas and they had all these like fresh hummus and sauces. And I mean, it was great. And I felt guilty. I, they're bringing more and more out. And like, I'm now in this seated lofted raised positions, looking down on all the peon students having to eat their little veggie falafels. And I'm up here with a smorgasbord of meat. Uh, and then that guilt though did not last long um, because really as soon as I tasted my first um, bite, I, I, I forgot students existed in the world. I barely knew Jared was sitting across from me at the table. This is uh, the power of, of what meat can do in my brain, at least. Um, but as true as I even reflect on it, and as we're going to reflect this morning, I think more appropriately, this is the power that we see um, that taste can sear into our minds um, more strongly than almost any of our senses. And, and I share that, you know, again, silly story, because namely Jared was leading. But then also what we're going to see is we're going to see people Peter present this truth. We're going to see Peter present a taste that shifts a mindset. That when we taste, we have no other right response than to change our mindset or what we're thinking. And then that's what we're going to be able to look at what he presents to us this morning. But we are. We are picking up in our conversation. Um, this is one that we've been uh, continuing to have over the weeks. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn them on, you can navigate over, uh, you can find First Peter. We're going to be now starting chapter 2. Um, to catch you up, if, you, if you're joining us for the first time, um, we've been in Peter for, for many, many weeks now. Uh, you can always go online and check out our sermon archive to be able to go back on those. Um, but to catch us up to where we are in essentially all of chapter 1, 
Um, Peter starts off with this presentation of a grace that is found in salvation. He is a main proponent as he wants to look at, remind us, point us in the argument to this overwhelming grace that is extended to us because Christ is our Savior. And from that grace, he spent 12 verses outlining that that grace can give us hope, that grace can give us joy, and in fact, that hope can, that grace can give us a perseverance in the faith through the trials that may come, because they're temporal trials, because again, we have a grace that is in salvation. He spends 12 verses presenting this masterful argument and doesn't call us to action. He never gives us a command until we get down uh, into the next section, verse 13, where then we were coming off of in this last reading, uh, that we are, we are now getting into the point that he tells us to do something with that assuredness of the grace of salvation. The, five, the, the four commands that he says, the first three we looked at were to fully hope, to be holy, and to fear God. And then last week, we considered the fourth one, which is to love the brotherhood. And remember, Chris presented this well. The first three were a call almost to our vertical relationship, our relationship to God, to hope fully in Him, to be holy like Him, and to fear Him as a judge and father. And then Peter throws in this fourth one and turns it from vertical to horizontal, because now his point is, if we rightly do that, if we rightly love God, then we're also going to love the brotherhood. We're going to love one another. And it's actually, so point is, again, a reminder um, that when Peter's writing this, he's not writing and then pausing to write little verse markings or chapter markings. Those are added much later for our reference. Uh, and in fact, what we're going to cover in three verses is actually just one sentence in the original Greek. And I think it probably more appropriately fits, not as a start for chapter two, but actually the conclusion of the same argument um, tied back into chapter one. And again, we'll, we'll see why probably here in a second. I don't, um, I don't think we're probably going to be in, in error reading it as a launching point for two, but I do think we're going to miss some insight if we don't look back to where we're coming from from chapter one. So with that in mind for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to back up a little bit, and I'm actually going to start in 122 to remind us of this love of the brotherhood, uh, and then we'll be able to continue on into the start of chapter two. So I'm going to invite you in reverency of God's Word to go ahead and stand, take a posture before him. Again, physically what we can do so easily and yet in our minds a representation of what we're desperate for him to do, which is only transform our lives. Starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, or therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Hear the various words of God and be blessed by them. You may be seated. So this is, this is the text um, that we're going to consider, these, these one, this one sentence, these three verses, um, and, it is, and it is a relatively simple text. I'm, I'm going to confess to you, there was a time that uh, when I was going through it, I was like, this, this just feels 
feels too simple. I mean, it's all right there. Peter explains it. It's all um, self-explained. We don't really have a ton to do with it. It's all presented. There's not a lot of expounding. Um, And so I was tempted to just jump into the next section and take us on into Peter's argument through chapter 2. But to do that, the next section actually would have taken us through another seven verses. Um, So we would have had to cover 10 verses this morning. And uh, John Redfern did the math uh, a couple weeks ago that we're right on pace for about 2.5 verses a week. And so I didn't want to be an overachiever because that's like a month's worth of work done crammed into one week. Uh, now, I say it in, in, again in jest, but also in a little bit of confession because that is my temptation. If I'm honest with you, that is my temptation. If I've come across something in Scripture that I understand, I want to jump and continue going till I have to find something that I don't understand. And then that's what I want to delve into. That's what I want to reveal rather than stopping and saying, yes, it's clear what the message is, but is that message that's clear in my mind? Is it clear in my heart? Do I, do I really take the time to stop and to dwell, dwell on this, meditate on God's Word, and see how it transforms my own life? And so, again, that's why I think it's probably more importantly that even though it's going to be a rather simple text, uh, my prayer is that we don't get just bored into the simplicity or we don't just miss uh, the beauty of stopping and reflecting on this, these simple truths in which Peter gives, gives for us. And so... Um, I think, again, we can, we can rightly then jump into this conversation understanding what, what Peter is trying to present to us. He's presenting to us this right spiritual life that comes from the right knowledge of who God is. And so let's jump back into the start of the chapter at verse 1 of chapter 2 um, with this simple ex- exhortation. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, in the ESV we're reading, and it's on the screen, so put away. Um, I read when I read it in our readings, I I added the word therefore. Um, It's the same word. I actually think it's probably more appropriately therefore. It's less confusing because that's actually exactly the same word that the ESV translated back in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, when we were studying there, because the whole point of starting in 13 saying therefore was to remember the only reason we're now talking about a command of something to do is because I've established this whole argument for 12 verses. And so it always is when we run across Scripture and we see the word therefore, we should be hearkening back to what is just presented. And I think that that's our call this morning, and that's why we read it, is because Peter is hearkening back. He's saying, if you're going to read these next three verses, you're going to miss one of the points if you don't remember what I just said about brotherly love. Now, some commentators will actually go so far to say um, that this actually, therefore, is doing the same as the first, therefore, in 13, looking back to the entirety of the book up until now. And so in chapter 2, we should be looking at the entirety of the book up until now. Um, and again, I don't think Peter's going to have a quib or a problem with that kind of application, um, but he would if we missed looking at brotherly love. And why I think we can't miss brotherly love is because with this list, this list of vices, when we see their effect, when we see who is offended when these are taken out, we see that they stand in stark contrast to the notion of us loving each other. And so uh, I think it is important for us to to stop and to focus in on what is this brotherly love um, that we talk about when we read across Scripture. Because again, it's found all across Scriptures. Here's a list of even just the few ones that I read through and found when I'm leading up to this. Um, The concept of loving one another apparently is vital in the understanding of uh, the application of our spiritual faith. 
And one of the ones that perhaps is strongest that can be seen that's not on this list is 1 John 4.20. And I wanted to put it on the screen as well because I think it's worth the consideration. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother when he, can, when he, has, when he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think John uh, is notorious, especially in, his, in 1 John, for presenting truths or the realities as so firm that there's, in his mind, no other reality that's even conceivable to fit within the truth of God's Word. So if it's God's Word and it is truth, then any other thing that looks other than that can't have any place in our lives. And that's how he verbally presents us over and over with these strong, strong statements in 1 John. And I think what Peter gets is I think Peter would agree with John here that Peter is presenting this same kind of logic. He is saying to us, if we are so moved by the grace of salvation that then we would be obviously loving one another, um, that that would be the right application of loving God, that then we would love one another, then why would we at all have not put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and all slander? Now, John, again, Redfern mentioned him twice, uh, again in the podcast this week leading up, he asked for some great questions about the structures of this, and he was like, so why is the all in there? Um, and why particularly is all only for three of them, as in all malice, deceit, and slander, and why not also for all hypocrisy and all envy? And truthfully, I looked a lot into it, and I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not. There were some very like technical linguistic things that were like, that's eh, just not helpful, and I don't really get it. But what I do know is I know what it doesn't mean in application, which is actually then that we were supposed to read it of like, okay, we're, we're supposed to put away all malice, deceit, and slander, but good news, you get to keep just a little bit of hypocrisy, <laughs> a little bit of envy. That's okay. Don't put all of that away. You got to be able to keep some of it in there. That's, that's clearly not what it is because this is a condition that through the illustration that Peter's given us doesn't exist. That even though it's not recorded that it has the all before all of them, it is certainly implied that all of them would be gone because it really comes first with the imperative command to put away. This put away is oftentimes translated put aside, uh, and this notion actually is, has a physical representation. This is a physical, literal uh, action. Um, we see it um, as the same word used in Acts 7, 58 at the stoning of Stephen. Um, when Stephen, the first martyr, is being stoned by the crowd, all the crowd takes off their cloaks and lays them down at the feet of Saul for his approval, who later becomes the apostle Paul. This laying down, that same, that same word is used there, that it's the idea of taking off a garment and setting it aside. Not carrying anything. It's not take off just one sleeve and then set your garment down because that's not impossible. It is take off all of your garment and set it down. Lay it aside. This notion of taking off evil con uh, uh, conduct and then putting on righteous one is righteous clothing is one again that uh, Jesus uses in Matthew, uses across uh, the New Testament in various ways. Um, the one I wanted to at least point out in reference was James one twenty one that says, Therefore, put away, this is the same thing, take off. Therefore, take off all filthiness and rampant wickedness and, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This idea, again, of taking it all off. 
And one of the commentaries, a guy named J.N.D. Kelly, um, Dr. Kelly, uh, I thought was very astute when he pointed to um, the, the physical representation that there probably would have been most immediate in their minds, and that is of baptism. Because in the early church, in the first century church, in the early church fathers, when they practiced baptisms, um, they, they didn't do in a horse trough up on stage um, where somebody stayed dry and just dunked somebody else. Uh, instead, they were most often using uh, the mikvah vats, baths of the Jewish tradition, the ritual cleansing baths. And for baptisms, um, they would have the convert come forward and remove all of their old filthy garments. They would take off their clothes. They'd walk down through the bath, emerge themselves, and come up out the other side only then to representatively put on new clothes. They would put on new clothes as a symbol to represent that they have taken off what is the old and now they stand putting on the new. And I think what Kelly uh, is linking here that I think is um, fascinating for us as the Gentile church and for them is in essence he's saying, be like what you just proclaimed. You just were baptized. You took off your old self. You put on new clothes. Why would you ever go back to those old dirty garments? Keep them off. Keep them laid aside. I think that we are, we are to love one another. What Peter is saying is we're not supposed to wear the attitude uh, of malice or deceit, or we're not supposed to have the action, wear the actions of hypocrisy, envy, or slander. That these are the things we are to take off. And again, I think this is, makes sense for the cost to the brotherhood, because when we consider these actions, when we consider these attitudes, we know who they cost. And actually put it on the screen for us to consider because all of these things have an effect and they affect somebody other than yourself. So when we look and we consider malice, the first one, malice, this is evil, this is wickedness, this is spite. When we consider this, it essentially means that we are profiting off of hurting somebody else. All these things give us profit at the expense to somebody else. Deceit is the same thing. Guile, treachery, lies. This is what we're talking about when we talk about deceit. It's to profit by misleading somebody else. Hypocrisy, we're talking about being a fraud. Um, we're talking about bigotry. We're talking about duplicity. When we do this, we are profiting by cheapening somebody else's experience of knowing who you really are. When we are living in envy, when we are spiteful, or begrudging, or living with grudgery, we are profiting by stealing through, the resent, through resentment what is somebody else's. And then lastly, when we consider slander, this is evil speaking, this is backbiting, this is detraction. Um, we're profiting by degrading somebody else falsely in order to prop ourselves up. Another one of the commentators, Peter Davids, uh, put it like this. He said, what has been gotten rid of, however, is not the grosser vices of paganism, but, and I like this, the community-destroying vices. This is about the destruction of brotherly love. What is gotten rid of, however, is not the greater vices of paganism, but the community-destroying vices that are often tolerated by the modern church. And I think this has to be our first point of application. And it is simply the question, are there any garments of old, any filthy garments of the former life to which you're still wearing? And I think this then would be the time that we hopefully can encourage and reflect on God's Word. I hope you revisit this list later this evening. I hope you revisit this list through the week. And I hope you ask the Holy Spirit um, to, to enlighten you to the ways to which you still are responding to these things and not the right love of the brotherhood and ask Him to do the work that only He can do, which is transform your lives. Now, you may be saying in the 
um, sad, pessimistic Eeyore voice of, here I am again at church, oh boy, another list of things to do, why bother, right? And it's just like, you read a list and you get overwhelmed and you just want to give up again, right? Because it just seems too daunting, it doesn't seem motivating. Um, this may be an even more obscure reference, so I'm sorry for those who don't get it, but for those who do and are maybe like my father, um, who is more of the nerdy bent, and so I was raised watching TV shows like The Red Green Show. Anybody from Canada? Okay, some people. Anyways, the whole premise of the show was a constant reverberating, if the women don't find you handsome, at least they may find you handy. Um, and in it, he leads these group of men in this lodge. Uh, and at the end of every episode, he has this man's prayer. He invites all, all the men to stand. And then he, he quotes in, in uh, actually Latin, a uh, loose translation of, um, when all else fails, just play dead. And then he invites everybody to bow their head. And then he says the men's prayer. And they all chime in together. And they say, they say I am a man, but I can change if I have to, I guess. And that's how their prayer every Sunday is. And it is a comical thing as it's in presentation, but it's actually one that I find um, is, unfortunately, there. Comedy here when it's our spiritual conditions, not so much in comedy. Uh, it's a sad state that when, when we think that then again, this just is a list that now we have to do, and it's a list that we see the only motivation is the avoidance of something negative, then what we're going to miss is we're going to miss the right reading of verse 2. That this isn't just the avoidance of something negative, but this is the avoidance of something negative because we have something much more supreme to pursue in the positive. It's, just, it's not not doing something. It is because you, it is doing something that is far greater than what we are called to do in, ab, in absence. And so again, this is the reality that I wanted to, to make sure that we have, that when we're going into verse 2, we must remember even the Lord's own words, right? In John 10.10, 10, and we know that there is somebody out there, and you know that there is a thief, that he's a devil, that he has come as a murderer, and yet what Jesus does is stand with this truth that he is not coming to give death, he is coming to give life, and it is a life that is abundant. And so again, when we just think that the abstinence of something is just about avoiding the negative, it's a partial mentality, because really, the purest form is not the avoidance of something negative, but it's the pursuit of an abundant life, something that he offers and so why, why do we carry these five vices in our lives? Why do we seek to love one another but fail to rid ourselves of these things? And I think it's because we're ultimately choosing the way of death and forgetting to choose the opportunity of life. Because again, we ran into this in verse 3 of chapter 1. We were given a new birth. Again, even in 23, we have been born again. Listen for these life-oriented words as we consider verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is not just saying, he's not using the simple analogy of take off the clothes and put on new clothes. He's actually transferring his illusion here, and he's saying take off the old clothes, um, but now live like one's alive. A newborn child, an infant, and in this process of, again, what is the right thing for a newborn child to do? It is to grow up. I think Peter is calling us to a more basic, more natural, to the core of our existence. He's calling us to then rightly understand that he's saying, don't, don't live a life of malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander. But instead, it's like, be like innocent children, essentially is what he's transitioning. So don't be guilty. Be like an innocent child. And consume what will make you grow. 
In one way, we could rewrite his uh, illustration and say verse 1 is all about the requirement of the innocence of children, the innocent of, innocence of a child. And now in verse 2, it requires the appetite of a child. So there we're called to be innocent like children. Now we're called to, called to eat like children. And this is the command he gives. Because what he gives again in the imperative is now this word to long for or to crave or to desire greatly, or other translations say to yearn for. This, I think, are all very good uh, translations of this word. It's a desire for something, almost put in the negative. It would be to not be satisfied with anything else. It's to desire only the best, only the right, only the good thing. And what are we supposed to desire? Well, the ESV says spiritual milk. And conceptually, I do think this is a fine translation, um, but I do appreciate the, the King James Version and the NSB and the CSB that probably more rightly says that it's not just for the spiritual milk, but rather they use the phrase, long for the pure milk of the Word, for the pure milk of God's revealed Word. This is the longing for us to have nourishment from the Scriptures and for what God has given us. We are only to have an appetite for His Word, which is the only diet to make us healthy to grow us, essentially to grow us into the full extent of salvation. And this is a past salvation that has a future reality, but it has a present participation. And when we have an appetite for God's Word, we then get the opportunity to live in a present uh, application of our salvation. And this is, again, is our new natural condition. What Peter's saying here is in this new condition, you now know and can identify what you need Whereas before you didn't know what you need, and now you do know what you need, and what you need is the Word of God. One of the stories that comically always comes to my mind when I think about uh, this idea is as for infants to crave pure spiritual milk or the Word of God. Um, uh, We we adopted our kids, so we didn't have this experience, but um, the first of my college roommates who got married, a guy named Mike, uh, when he had his son Caleb, we all went up to Arkansas um, when they got home from the hospital and got to be there um, and celebrate him. And their arrangement was that uh, Emily, uh, throughout the day, would do the feeding and would pump so that then at night, Mike could get up with the infant and be able to feed. And so we were hanging out um, kind of in his enclosed porch, um, already ready to go to bed, but we were like, well, I'm going to have to get up in an hour to feed, so you're here. We haven't seen each other in a long time. Let's hang out and catch up. And so we're catching up, and then sure enough, in the conversation, we hear the, uh, the, the cry of, okay, it's time. It's time for Mike to go to work. And uh, he gets up, and he goes, and he gets Caleb, and he's walking back out, and now he's in the process of, he's holding Caleb, and he's in the process of trying to get the bottle made and trying to get it warmed up. Uh, And Mike is, wouldn't be offended if I share this with you, uh, but he is not a small man. And in that discrepancy, uh, Caleb then woke up and did what maybe best and politely put a false latching. (laughs) And I'll tell you, when Caleb realized realized what, where he was and who he was with, he let Mike know, you are useless to me. <laughs> he let Mike know with a look of confusion and then a subsequent cry and scream that this is not what I need. I came and I needed something and I let that know and you're providing me with something else. Actually, he was so distraught that then he wouldn't even take his bottle from Mike. He was like, no, 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 I know the one. Go get that lady. 
She's the one I need for this. And I think this is the picture that what we see in this, what Peter's trying to say is that that's our reality. We have a new birth. We should consider all those five traits, those vices, as something that we just can't even fathom wanting we would want to turn to for sustenance when we have the very words of God, that this is what we should crave as as children who are longing for our nourishment, growth and salvation, and the presentation of His Word. And so I would say, again, if, if we are at all to miss the point of this not being a positive trait, that's something that this is a reality we should long for and strive for, well, then Peter continues in verse 3 by saying, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's not only what we want in this new life that we need, it's also the life abundant that He has promised indeed. This is the understanding that we, we are now in a, have a new set of cravings. We have a new appetite. It's something that we have not had before, and now that we partake in it, we should only turn to that. When we taste God's richnesses, we should, or riches, we should only desire and crave more of Him. I think this is why we read um, in the psalmist. This is why David uh, could proclaim, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We read it then, but I wanted to provide some illustrations because this is what is happening in my brain when I read, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And since Chris is out of town, we'll give one imagery for all you who find more <laughs> akin to him. I think whatever it is, this is the notion that we are to find what spurs on our own taste about his goodness, and we should put our refuge in that. It should draw us closer and closer to him. Charles Purgeon calls this divine food. Uh, he put it this way, reflecting on this passage, let us cultivate that combination of hunger and thirst which is found in a little child, that we may hunger and thirst thus after God's word. We have done more than taste the word. We have tasted that the Lord himself is gracious. Let us long to feast more and more upon this divine food that we may grow thereby. And I think this brings us to our final point of application. And again, honestly, for me, it's one that's kind of mixed between thankfulness and confession. On one hand, all week, I've been very thankful. I wanted to adopt an, an attitude of thanksgiving that God provided even me His Word, spiritual nurturing through Scripture. And yet, at the same time, I had then that immediately led me into confession of then why do I take what is good and I've tasted and I've seen, and why do I turn to anything else? And this was playing back, this both thankful for His goodness and then also confessing my inadequacy. But luckily, it always is a cyclical thing because when I go to the passage and remind myself, it is still then His goodness which gives me the milk. It's still then His empowering to then allow me to participate in the work. Again, I'm not accomplishing the work. I'm not reading Scripture transforming my life. It's not my discipline to spend every day in God's Word to transform my own life. These are disciplines. These are right things we should strive after. They are good things to work for, but ultimately it is His gift for us to even participate in the work that He's accomplishing in us. And so again, that right mindset of remembering He is the good one, and thus we don't need to be downtrodden when we consider this, this overwhelming list of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. Instead, what we have is presented a choice. We no longer have to choose a life of death. We now have a choice of life and life abundant. And I think this is, this is reminding me of our application we used a couple weeks ago because this is where that, that um, 
illustration kind of falls apart. If you were here weeks ago, um, we talked about this notion of why do we choose not good things and good things. And we talked about um, the illustration of the pennies or the nickels versus the dimes. Um, if you weren't here, essentially what it was is uh, why would we choose a nickel over a dime? Well, you look at it and you think, well, it's bigger. So, of course, bigger is better. I'm going to choose the nickel and I'm going to forego on the dime. When in reality, what that is is we make a wrong choice because we lack the proper understanding of value. Um, we say, no, if you really understood what the dime was, you would choose 10 cents every time. Where this falls apart is because in those choices, um, we may say in that illustration, well, even if you do choose the nickel, well, you end up with five cents. I mean, you're better off than nothing. But in all reality, what's presented here is not that choice at all. It's not a choice between something valuable and less valuable. It's a choice between something valuable and valueless. It's the choice of life versus death. And I think that that's what Peter, I know, is, is trying to make abundantly clear is that there is one new life you've been born into. One that then God, through his graciousness, has equipped you with everything it takes to love the brotherhood. He's equipped you with the ability to take off all these vices. He's given you the ability to participate in his work through you by reading his word. And I think our choice this morning is, are we going to choose that life or are we going to choose death? This is an example that always comes to my mind, um, and I've shared from the stage before this book. It's called The Smell of Sin and the Fresh Air of Grace. Um, if you're like one of the three people who listens to our podcast, um, a couple weeks ago, we, we actually read this in uh, entirety, um, and I came to it again because this, what strikes me most in my brain when I think about the choice between life and death, um, I always come back to this presentation. Um, what, uh, what Don Everts does in a number of his books, he, he writes what I call laundry books because it takes about the time to do laundry as it does to read them. Um, what he writes, he's like muses, um, and they're really designed to uh, grab at the emotion of something to then draw you back to the truth of Scripture. So it is a little bit of an emotional pull, and there is a little bit of a gravitas and um, also probably some uh, graphic nature uh, to this imagery. But again, I think it's fitting. It's fitting not to get lost in the graphic nature, but it's fitting to remind ourselves of the truth of the choice of life and death. And this one is called The Picnic. It's a little long, but it's worth it. Imagine a young child sitting near the beach with her parents. There's a great picnic spread before her, a wonderfully thick checkered blanket on the grass simply covered with goodies. Watermelon, of course, and sharp cheddar cheese with crackers, and a bowl of steaming corn on the cob, deviled eggs and chocolate cookies and dill pickles, and a clear glass pitcher full of cold lemonade and clinking ice. Now you know why I saved it to the end, so you now go to lunch. It's a good day. The sun is overhead, and the breeze is blowing slightly, just enough to keep the flies away. But the daughter, the little girl sitting on the grass next to the blanket, well, she's eating, that's for sure, but she's eating dirt-covered rocks. Yes, rocks. As sure as the grass is green and the sun warms the air, she's picking up pebbles and stones from the ground around her and eating them. Her teeth are beginning to chip and crack in places, and there's blood that's beginning to drip out of her tiny mouth, and she's forcing a smile. Of course, her parents try desperately to stop her, but she's a determined little girl, and the longer she goes on without real food, the more desperate she gets. She's grabbing fistfuls now, grass, rocks, dirt, twigs, all together being shoved into her young mouth. And the parents are weeping beside her. The sad sight of her frenzy next to the wonderful food they've prepared is just too much. 
Parents plead desperately through flowing tears. Honey, those aren't good for you. You're breaking your teeth, honey. Look, look here at the blanket. They try not to break down. Look at the yummy watermelon on the blanket. Won't you eat this? Their their words are tender, but hers is harsh. Your blanket? I'm tired of being stifled by your blanket. But the parents start to get up in disbelief. She says, get out of my face. I don't want your blanket. This little girl's parents aren't shaking their fingers. They aren't dreaming up a punishment. They are weeping. For they know that the blanket, and they know what's on the blanket, and they know what rocks and grass do for a young body. They won't force feed her cheese and watermelon. They weep because they know their daughter is slowly killing herself. That is the smell of sin, according to Jesus. I am the true vine. I am the true bread come down from heaven. All other vines and bread, they are false. They are like rocks and grass and dirt. I think appropriately when we think about the choice of choosing death in our old life versus choosing life, and now can be summarized more by that. Are we sitting on the blanket eating the watermelon given to us, or are we choosing rocks and dirt? I think that's going to be our closing application uh, as Jared comes back up. And I do hope um, that when faced with that reality, I hope that it serves as an illustration that's strong enough uh, to remind you of that truth. So when you're faced with the opportunity of hypocrisy, when you're faced with the opportunity of envy, when you're faced with the opportunity of deceit, of costing somebody else rather than loving your brother rightly, I pray you remember, no, that is a choice of rocks, and yet I've been presented with a choice of watermelon. That is his good word. That is why Howard Hendricks goes to lament um, how many people would drive all the way across town uh, to hear God's word, but they won't even cross their living room to consume it themselves. And so I do pray. I pray for myself and I pray for all of us that we may rightly consume God's word and be challenged to take whatever step it is, the next step. If you don't, if the only time you open up God's word is when you come here on Sunday mornings, then great. Don't feel the burden of saying, well, my next goal is to read my scriptures every day for at least an hour. No, that would be a far reach. Start with something practical and whatever step that it is you can take, what we know is that it's a step blessed by the Lord. Because when you consume his word, even in part, even in flakiness, even in an unsteady discipline and routine, it is still his good spiritual milk for you.